You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we come now to your word with the great expectation that we are going to see you in here, your purpose, your plan, your power, that you might be glorified through our time that we spend looking at your word. We pray that it might be unfolded in truth and in power, because in the unfolding of your word there is light. And so we ask your blessing on this time, that our hearts may receive your word and find confidence therein, all to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have um, have a confession of sorts to make. I was thinking through my, my life this last week, and I came to the realization that my life story is really a story of a lot of uncompleted projects. Now, my suspicion is that many of you share that with me, and I'm not unique in that. I have a life filled full of things that I have started and never completed. For instance, when I was in grade school, there was a a new family that moved to the community, and they started attending, the kids started attending school right here at Kootenai Elementary. And when they showed up, they instantly set themselves apart as the coolest kids in all of the school. One of the brothers was two grades ahead of me, one of the brothers was one grade ahead of me, and they quickly became the coolest kids in all of the school in all eight grades because they could do something that nobody else could in the school could do. In fact, they could do something that nobody else in the school had ever seen done before. They could break dance. Do you remember break dancing? And they could do it all. They could do the, the jerky robotic moves. They could spin on their head, spin on their back. They could moonwalk. They could do all of it, the break dancing. And they would put on little demonstrations standing in the, in the lunch line, getting ready to eat lunch. After lunch, they would put on little shows out here in the gymnasium. Uh, they would do it between classes, out on the, out on the playground between classes during recess, always giving these little demonstrations and everybody. And look, as a kid, I wanted to be cool too. So I bought a book, How to Break Dance. And I started practicing breakdancing. And I know that you're hoping that I'm going to be able to bust a couple of moves for you up here. But I can't do that because my interest in breakdancing lasted about two weeks and I learned how to moonwalk and that was about all that I learned how to do and I dropped it. A little time after that, the music teacher, the, he was an area music teacher, came to the school and he came to teach music classes two days a week. And I got convinced that I wanted to learn how to play an instrument. So my family was not... My family was very poor. We didn't have enough money to actually buy an instrument, so we rented one from the school district. Well, after all of the other bigger schools in the whole district got their choice of the rental instruments, I was left with a baritone, and I was going to learn how to play the baritone. Baritone's twice the size that I was as a kid, and I packed that thing to school and from school on the bus, and there was nothing like packing a baby pachyderm on your back to make you the most unpopular kid in all the school. I would climb on school buses that were already overcrowded, And I would need a seat just for my baritone. So I'd have to empty out a seat and everybody would have to go find a place to sit for my baritone. I had my big overstuffed duffel bag in one arm, my baritone in the other arm, and I was going to learn how to play the baritone. And I went home every night and I could never master that vibration of the lips thing that you do, however you produce sound. I could never manage to do that. Finally, the music teacher who gets paid to teach kids how to conduct music, to do music, actually encouraged me to drop the class. And did not do it anymore. And after a couple of weeks of packing the baritone back and forth, I was ready to be free of that thing. So I dropped it and 
figured, well, my obvious lack of musical talent and ability encouraged actually the music teacher to say, you know what, this isn't for you. You need to find something else to do, like disturbing some other class during music time. So I just dropped all hopes of ever playing a musical instrument until a couple years ago. I decided that I would like to learn how to play the guitar because this was before Steve or Mel or anybody else with musical talent came here. And I didn't have any. Deidre, of course, did, but she was the only piano player. I thought it would be nice to add a guitar to the music. And I was leading worship at the time. So I figured out I'll pick up the guitar and try and learn how to play a guitar. So I found somebody, a Christian guy, who knew how to play the guitar. I asked him if I could pay for lessons from him, and he said, sure. So I took Deidre's guitar, and I tried to learn how to play a guitar. It lasted four, five, six weeks. I learned four or five chords at the most. It took me about three minutes to transition from one chord to another chord. And I never even came close to producing a recognizable sound with the guitar. And so I just dropped it. I figured that's not obviously not me. It wasn't my music teacher who was a bad teacher. The problem actually was with me. And so I dropped all hopes of ever learning a guitar. You probably have your own list of things that you started and never finished, don't you? A hobby project, a correspondence course, a college course, a degree, a landscaping project, a remodel, a construction project, right? A garden. You have your own list of, of things that are strewn throughout your life that you've started and that you've never finished. A, a puzzle. I can't tell you how many puzzles I've started and not finished. I hate puzzles. I don't know why I ever start them. I hate them. And novels. I like novels almost as much as I like puzzles. I can't tell you how many novels I've started that I've never finished. I start things and then I drop them and never finish them all the time. And you do that as well. Why do we do it? You know why we do it? Because we're fickle. Something strikes us as cool, we pick it up and we start it, but then our interests change, our desires change, and the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence. I have a a shelf of books in my office that I plan on reading this year, and whenever I finish one book, I usually have about five books going at any given time, I finish one book and I grab the next book off of the shelf to take it home and start reading it. I get about halfway through that book and I'm already looking forward to the next book because this book wasn't quite all that I expected it to be, and the grass already appears greener on the other side, and I want to drop the project that I'm started with and start something else. We're fickle. Sometimes the problem is that we just don't count the cost going into something. We're like the person that Jesus spoke about in the illustration in the Gospel of Luke, who plans to build a tower but never considers the cost, never sits down and figures it out, and so he gets halfway done, and then he drops the project. We do that sometimes. We don't count the cost of what it's going to cost us financially or what it's going to cost us as far as our time is concerned or our effort or our energy. And so we start something and then we let it peter out and we never finish it. Sometimes our interests change. Sometimes our desires change. I wanted to learn how to do breakdancing. That lasted two weeks. I want to learn how to to play the baritone. That lasted as long as it took for me to get pelted with things outside the school bus for carrying that big thing on the school bus to begin with. And so my desires changed and my interests changed. Friends, I have news for you, and this is good news, but it's not going to strike you as the most profound thing you'll hear this morning, and it's this. God is not like us in that way at all. He's not fickle. His desires don't change. His interests do not change. He doesn't lack the power or the talent to see something through to the end. I simply lacked the talent to learn to play a musical instrument. I probably could learn, but there's nobody in their right mind that would want to teach me And by the time I actually learned it, I would be so frustrated and fed up with it that the blessing would evaporate out of having learned it. I lack the power and the talent to finish something like that. God does not lack the power or the talent to finish what it is that He begins. His interests don't change and His desires don't change. His plans do not alter. Men conduct experiments, but God carries out His plans. 
And it is that truth and that reality that allows Paul to say with such confidence in Philippians 1 verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will complete it, will perfect it, all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. And that's our text this morning. And you need to have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at verse 6. There is in Philippians chapter 1, of course, an entire context. And we looked at the first part of it last week, Paul's statement of assurance. He begins thanking them and thanking God for them in verse 3. And basically, there are three reasons for which Paul is giving thanks that he enumerates. First of all, all of the Philippians' remembrance of him continually in the offerings and the praying and their service. Second, for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And those are really the immediate causes of his thanksgiving. But then in verse 6, he looks beyond them, beyond the present, all the way to the future, and he gives to them the ultimate reason for his thanksgiving. I thank God in my every prayer for all of you, every time I pray with joy, because I am confident, verse 6, of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Now friends, there are there is the question that comes up in verse 6 in Philippians chapter 1, and the question is this. Am I secure in my salvation, and can I have confidence that I will ultimately be saved? Or is it possible that having begun in my Christian life, having been called by the Lord, having been saved and having my sins forgiven, is it possible that I could sin in some way, stumble or fall in such a way as to lose that which I, I seem to now possess, that is my salvation? Or is it possible for me to decide that I don't want to be in the Savior's hand and I don't want to be in God's salvation plan and so I'm going to jump out? I mean, after all, Jesus said, nobody is able to pluck them out of my hand and nobody is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand and my Father is greater than I and I and my Father are one. But is it possible that I could sort of skinny out of there? That I could move one or two of those fingers and loosen the Savior's grasp on me and ultimately and finally and fully be lost? Is it possible that having begun my Christian life that I might ultimately perish? Or am I eternally secure? There are two basic truths in verse 6 that help us to answer that question. And these are them. Number one, salvation is the work of God. And number two, what God begins, He completes. Those are the basic truths. It's not difficult to understand either one of them. Both of them are assumed and presented here in verse 6 that leads Paul to this statement of confidence. Salvation is the work of God, number one. And number two, what God begins, He completes. Now let's say at the beginning, and let's all be honest. We all know people who have started in the Christian life and have not finished it, don't we? We all know people who have prayed the magic prayer they have gone forward at the evangelistic meeting. They've checked the box. They've marked the card. They've been discipled. They have grown up for a period of time in the Christian walk. They have prayed. Some of them have been elders, pastors, teachers, missionaries, Bible school teachers, exemplary Christian lives, so to speak, and then they apostatize. They leave and walk away from the Lord. We all know men who have walked away from their wives and their children for another woman, or women who have walked away from their husbands and their children for other men, who otherwise led exemplary Christian lives, but all of a sudden, something happened, and like a dog returning to its vomit, and like a sow having washed to its wallowing in the mire, they go back to the life that they once lived. 
And we all look at that and we say, how is this possible? That somebody who is saved can do that. How is, did they lose their salvation? Did they begin in the Christian life and carry along for a period of time and then slip and fall and slide down the slope and perish? What happened to them? We all want to ask that question, don't we? And we need to be honest that it is not our experience that determines how we interpret Scripture, but it is Scripture that determines how we look at and interpret our experience. So we're going to ask, answer the question, can I have confidence ultimately in the security of my salvation? Can I have confidence ultimately in the security of my salvation? That's answered in verse 6. Read it again with me and then we'll look at those two principles. Verse 6 says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now friends, here's the first principle. The salvation is the work of God. Notice what Paul says, I am confident. Now here's something you have to understand about the word confident. In the original Greek, the original Greek word, if you were to translate it into the English, would be this. I am confident. It's a good translation. It doesn't mean I have hope. It doesn't mean I suspect. It doesn't mean it seems. It doesn't mean I have an optimistic expectation. Paul says, I am confident. I know something for certain. He has an utter and complete confidence. There is no lack of confidence whatsoever. There is no doubt in his mind that God, when He begins the work, will complete the work. And so Paul says, I am confident. If Paul wanted to express an optimism, he could have used a word to express optimism. If he wanted to express a hope or an anticipation or some sort of a supposing or imagining that something is true, he could have used words to express that. Instead, he says, I'm confident. And Paul expresses a confident in spite of all that was mitigating against the Philippians ever ultimately being saved. Friends, it was not going to be an easy road for them to be saved. In chapter 1, verse 30, we find out that they were suffering affliction for the cause of Christ, just as Paul was suffering affliction for the cause of Christ. So you say, Paul, how can you express confidence in their ultimate salvation when those very Philippians are being afflicted for their faith? What if some of them turn their back and walk away from Christ? What if some of them would rather like the easy life rather than suffer the afflictions and suffer the reproach of Christ? How can you be so confident in spite of their afflictions that they're ultimately going to be saved? Wouldn't it be better for the Apostle to have said, I have a sneaking suspicion that you'll ultimately be saved. Or I sure hope that you'll... I'm optimistic that you'll eventually persevere to the end and finally make it in the day of Christ Jesus. But he doesn't do any of that, does he? I am confident, no doubt in my mind, that if God has begun the work in you, He will complete the work in you all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. It's the strongest statement on the subject of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints that you can hope to find. Chapter 3, we find out there were enemies of the cross of Christ, false teachers who were coming into the church and sort of starting to circulate false doctrines amongst the Christians there. How can Paul be so confident that the Philippians will make it all the way to the end if there were false teachers who were there leading them astray and trying to lead them astray? How can he express such confidence? You know how he can express such confidence? Because he understood. It is he who began the good work in you. The salvation is a work of God. If salvation is my doing, if salvation is your doing, if it's something you begin and you continue and you complete by your good works, your perseverance, your standing strong, if it's something that rests with you, and let me give you a shocker, there is absolutely no way anybody can say with any degree of confidence that you will finally make it. Because I know and I have seen people 
repent of sin while they're in the midst of committing the sin that they're repenting of. And we all know people who in their own strength will fall away. We are fickle. We don't count the cost. We are transient. We are temporary. We have spiritual attention deficit disorder. And all of us want to change things. The grass gets greener and afflictions come and persecutions come. And if it rests with you, then you can have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that you will actually make it to the end. But how can Paul be so confident? Why? Because it's not we who begin the work. It is He who begins the good work in us. So what is the good work? Now some people, in order to try and blunt the obvious force of Paul's words here, will say the good work is actually the works that the Philippians were doing. Their participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. They had given to Paul. They had prayed for Paul. They had served with Paul. They had fellowship in the Gospel. And so Paul is saying, I am confident that He who began those good works through you is going to complete them all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. And so rather than seeing the good works as speaking of salvation, they see it, the good work as speaking of the works that they did in service and that God would continue to do those works through them. There's only two problems with that. Number one, it's not the good works, it's the good work, singular. Second, it was not something that was done through them, it was something that was done in them. And and Paul obviously has salvation in mind since he speaks of that ultimate day of Christ Jesus, which is the day of glory for all of God's saints. It's obviously a salvific reference or a reference to salvation. So it's not the good works that were they were doing. It is that good work, namely salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us what the good work is. He has predestined us to what? Be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good work that God has begun in you. It's the work of salvation. And God begins it. You don't begin it. Remember back in Acts chapter 16 when Paul came to Philippi? And he went down to the river Ganges, and there he met Lydia and these women who had gathered there on the Sabbath for worship. And Paul began to explain the Gospel to them. What does Luke say? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Who began that work? It was the Lord who began that work. Who begins your salvation? Are you the author and finisher of your faith? Or is Jesus Christ the author and finisher of your faith? Who begins it? You don't author your faith. You don't muster up the faith to believe. You don't choose yourself. It's God who chooses us for salvation. To the Thessalonians, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for His choice of you. Because God chose you, Paul says. I thank God for that. If they chose God, then Paul might as well just thank the Thessalonians. Thanks, guys, for choosing Him. Narrow one. You almost missed that one. But he doesn't. He thanks God. Because it was God's choice. It's God who seeks after sinners. It's God who pursues us wicked, rebellious hearts to find worshipers for Himself. It's God who draws us. It's God who came and took upon Himself flesh and died on a cross. It's God who rose again. It's God who has ascended on high. It is God who draws us to the Father through the Spirit. And it is God who gives us the faith to believe, the gift of repentance so that we might come to faith in Christ. It's God who regenerates us, gives us newness of life, changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, gives us a new nature, raises us up and seats us in the heavenly places with Christ, blesses us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, adopts us into His family, seals us with the Spirit, puts the Spirit of God into that new heart, and then it is God Himself who guarantees and perseveres and keeps us for salvation. You don't begin it, you don't continue it, and you don't finish it. It's all God. He's the one who begins it. And He's the one who completes it. Now, if God doesn't begin the work, then there's no guarantee it'll be completed. But since God begins it, since salvation is the work of God, 
Since it's His act, friends, and Scripture is consistent in His testimony from the first page all the way to the last page, salvation is of the Lord. It is the salvation of the Lord. It's His salvation. It's not our work. He begins it. That's what Paul's referring to. Salvation is the work of God. He who began that good work in you. Last half of the verse. This is the second principle. What God begins, He completes. Now that's not difficult to understand that, is it? What God begins, He completes. God doesn't conduct experiments. He doesn't just start balls rolling and hope that they continue all the way to the end. He doesn't do anything in halves. He's not fickle. He doesn't change His mind. When God sets out to do something, He doesn't just sort of create a plan and say, okay, I'm just going to leave it up to you to do it. God actually purposes something and plans something and then He moves to see it to completion. And this is our confidence. That if God begins something in someone, God will complete that all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. That's our confidence. That what God begins, He completes. And if it's not completed, then it wasn't God who began it in the first place. But God begins that which He completes. And He does this all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Now once again, if you and I are responsible for completing our salvation, then we can have no confidence that we'll actually see it through. Can we? If you're responsible for completing your salvation, the best I can say is, you know what? I hope you'll end up making it. But I know you will. And I know you're a weak person, sinful, fallen, just like me. But I sure hope you have the confidence. I sure hope you have the ability. I sure hope you have the power to see it through to the end. That's the best thing I can say. Or maybe I could say I'm optimistic that you would end up seeing it through. But I cannot in any way say I'm confident that it will be completed. The only way you can say you're confident if it will be completed is that if God begins it, then God will finish it. Because, see, friends, it's His name that is at stake. It's His glory that is at stake in the work of salvation. And is it possible that we might sit in heaven and have all of the minions in hell be able to say of our God, oh, He started a whole lot of projects that He never finished. He started those things, but He was never able to see them through to completion. No, the will of man, the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of fallen men, the allurements of the world, the temptations of the flesh were all too strong for God's people. He was able to start the ball rolling, but He was never able to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was never able to see it through to the end. Do you remember that that's what Moses feared that the pagans would say about God when God threatened to destroy the nation of Israel in the wilderness? He brought them up, those wicked people, and God said, let's wipe them all out start with you. And Moses begged with God, said, no, 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 no. Then all of the pagan nations would be able to say, he started this, but he was never able to finish it. He brought the people up out of the wilderness, but he couldn't take them through and fulfill the promise, and so he slaughtered them in the promise, in the, outside the promised land. Moses said, Lord, your glory is at stake. You have to finish what you've started. Moses understood that about God. You and I can understand that about God. He doesn't work in halves. He doesn't try something and get it. God doesn't try to do anything. You understand that? God doesn't try to do anything. He just does it. And what He begins, He completes. And He will do this all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. What's the day of Christ Jesus? It's that which Paul speaks of in chapter 3, verse 20. That day when He will, hum- he will transform the state of our humble body into conformity to the body of His glory by the exertion of His power. It's that day that the Old Testament spoke of as the day of the Lord. That final day when all of the saints will share perfectly in the righteousness and the glory of Jesus Christ. When we will be with Him, we will be glorified with Him, we will ultimately be there at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, if God begins it, He will take it all the way through to the end and He will wrap it up totally complete, all the way to the day of Christ Jesus, to the end of it. God will not drop you halfway there. He will not drop you 15, 16ths of the way there. 
He's not going to let you slip out of His hand. He's not going to allow you to jump out of His hand. He will keep you and preserve you all the way, perfectly complete until the day of Christ Jesus. That's incredible confidence, is it not? Some of you may think that you're able to jump out of God's hand. You understand that it's the, it's the character and the reputation, the integrity of the Savior and the shepherd of the sheep that is at stake? And what would we say of a shepherd who was unable to save all of his sheep? What would we say of a shepherd who was unable or a Savior who was unable to do all of the Father's will, which was to raise up all of his people at the last day? What would we say of a Savior who was thwarted by our designs, by our sinfulness or by our wickedness? What would we say of such a Savior who failed like that? And we can answer this question of am I eternally secure? We can answer it from a whole lot of different perspectives. We could talk about election. and say, well, how is it that election figures into this? Is it possible for someone who's elect to perish? Or is it possible for someone who's not elect to be saved for a period of time then lose their salvation and perish? Or we could talk about it from the perspective of the shepherd and the sheep and what Jesus came to do. We could talk about it from the perspective of the cross of Christ and the atonement. Is it possible that His work on the cross could be made of no effect? for those for whom He sacrificed and gave His life to save. Is it possible for that to happen? We can answer it a whole bunch of different ways, but Paul just basically tells us two things. Number one, salvation is the work of God, and what God begins, He completes. Therefore, we have confidence, and this is our confidence, that if God begins the work, He will complete the work all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Now let me, by way of application, and you think you're sweating, let me, by way of application, just give you four things that this does not mean. Okay? So that we don't understand, we don't misunderstand where I'm going with this and what the verse is teaching. Four things that this does not mean, and this will help us to sort of apply the verse in this way. First of all, this does not mean, the fact that we are secure in our salvation does not mean that we have a license to sin. It does not mean that we have a license to sin. You meet somebody who says, hey, I got my fire insurance taken care of, right? I trusted Jesus. I went forward. I checked the box. I prayed the prayer. I got it all taken care of. Now I can live however I want. I can go out and fornicate. I can be a drunkard. I can be a a blasphemer. I can be an adulterer. I can do all of these things because I'm eternally secure. I'm one of God's sheep and I've got my place reserved in heaven. So since I'm eternally secure, I can sin as I want and I'll be completed and glorified on the day of Christ Jesus in spite of my life. That people like that? You've met people like that, haven't you? Let me tell you something. And hear this, and hear this carefully. Saved people do not think like that. Those who have been regenerated do not think like that. Saved people hate their sin. They don't look for excuses to revel in it. Saved people have a new nature, and they love righteousness, and they hate sin. So you ever meet anybody who says, look, I'm just going to sin my life away because I'm eternally secure, you can be certain of one thing almost for certain. They are neither saved nor secure. Either one. Why? Because saved people do not use grace as a license to sin. That's the mark of the unregenerate. It's the unregenerate individual who wants to sort of soothe their conscience with a false hope that they have a heaven, a home in heaven. And they can soothe their conscience and indulge their lusts and say, I'm eternally secure. God would never let me down. Friends, you can almost be certain that the only confidence they can have is that they began a work and it will not be completed until the day of Christ Jesus because those whom God saves don't think like that. That's not the thinking of the elect. That is not the thinking of righteous people, of regenerate people who've been given grace and a new nature. They hate sin. We hate sin. So now let's ask the question, what about those who walk away? 
What about those who are saved for, seem to be saved for a period of time and then abandon the faith? We all know them. I went to Bible school with men and women who today don't make any profession of faith in Christ whatsoever. They went to college for some of them two, three, and four years, and today they're not serving the Lord. They're not going to church. They're living in, in uh, immoral relationships and make no profession of faith in Christ whatsoever. What do we do with them? Well, friends, I think what is true of them is this, that they went out from us because they were never of us. And if they had been with of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be manifest that they were not of us. That's 1 John 2, verse 19. Why did they leave? Why did they abandon? Because they're like a sow returning to the mud. They've never been changed from a sow into something else. So they reform themselves, they clean themselves up for a period of time, and then they go right back to their vomit, right back to their wallowing in the mire, and they demonstrate what their true nature is. There are false converts, people. Not everybody who says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. There are people who are false converts, who have no love for righteousness, no desire for holiness, no love for God's Word whatsoever, and they can they reform their life, but they never are regenerated. They clean themselves up on the outside, but they've never had their nature changed. They make mental assent, and they're orthodox in their beliefs, mentally speaking, but their hearts have never been changed. They have never had saving faith, which manifests itself in works and perseverance in the faith. So what do we do with these people? I think the best thing we can say is that from all appearances, they began something themselves, and it wasn't God who began the work, but they began the work. They reformed themselves, they cleaned themselves up for a period of time, but it was inevitable that they would return to their wallowing in the mire because they were never regenerated. They were only reformed. False converts who think they're saved, who want other people to think they're saved, but they're living a lie, and they likely know that they're living a lie. And then when the lust of the flesh become too much and the desires of this world become too much, they fall away. Jesus had one such person on his team. Do you remember him? Judas? Who suspected Judas of being the traitor? Nobody. They gave him the money bag. He was the treasurer for the whole group. And he was stealing money out of the money bag. Everybody thought he was an exemplary Jew, an exemplary disciple. And when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, all of the disciples, nobody thought, oh, Judas, he's the obvious traitor. He's the obvious false convert among us. He's the obvious false disciple. Nobody said that. Everybody said, ooh, is it me? Am I the one? Nobody suspected Judas. Nobody knew it was going to be Judas. Paul had one of those false converts on his team, a man by the name of Demas. At the end of his life, Paul said, Demas loved this present world and has forsaken me. He bailed. He bailed on the whole Christian project and went after the world, showing that the love of the Father was never in him. Friends, there are false converts who fill churches and they reform themselves for a while, but they're not truly saved. They're not truly regenerate. And then when they leave, it's not that they lost their salvation. They never had genuine salvation to begin with. How do I know that? Because I can be confident of this very thing, that if God began that work in them, that He will complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. That's our confidence. So first of all, this is not an excuse or a license for sin. Second, it is not an excuse for apathy. Some people may say, well, I'm going to be perfect eventually. I don't have to work on it here. I don't have to apply the means of grace. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray every day. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to sing and worship. I don't have to serve the Lord. I don't have to give. I don't have to pray for missionaries. I don't have to do anything that has to do with nurturing my own spiritual growth because God is going to complete that all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. This is not an excuse for apathy. You know why you should read your Bible and pray every day? You know why you should love the Lord and worship Him and discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? You know why you do that? You know why you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Because it's He who works in you both to will and to work for your good pleasure. 
Philippians chapter 2. Far from being a motivation for apathy, the fact that God is at work perfecting me until the day of Christ Jesus is my chief motivation for pursuing holiness and disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness. Because I have this confidence that I'm not doing it on my own. It's He who is at work in me. And He's doing it, and I want to cooperate with Him to the nth degree. So that I might cooperate in that sanctifying and securing work. It's not an excuse for apathy. It's not an excuse to say, well, if God's preserving me, then I don't have to persevere. Oh, no. You have to persevere. Philippians 2, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work in you. Let me give you another example of persevering. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle says, we should always, now listen to the, listen to the words that he uses and the concepts that he talks about in these few short verses. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank God for your election, for your faith, for your salvation, for the truth, for your security, for your calling, and for your eventual glory. And in those words, Paul takes them from eternity past all the way to eternity future, from their choosing in Christ before the foundation of the world to their ultimate glory before the throne of God. And he says this is all the work of God and we thank God that He's doing all of this in you. But then listen to the very next verse. Paul says this, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Just because this is true of you doesn't mean that you need to be apathetic and not holding to the truth. The book of Hebrews is one of the most powerful books on the subject of eternal security that you could ever find in the New Testament. The entire argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ as a Savior is superior to all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts, all of the festivals, all of the Old Testament priesthood. He is exalted at the right hand of God and He has saved and He is securing His people. And you are utterly and totally secure in Him. But then when you think of the book of Hebrews, what do you think of? You think of the warning passages. All these passages that people say tell us you you can lose your salvation. The strongest book on the New Testament on the subject of eternal security has the strongest warning passages in all the New Testament. Why is that? Because the more confident you are in your ultimate salvation, in your security in Christ, the less you should be willing to be apathetic toward the means of grace, your own salvation, your growth and holiness. So it's not a license for sin. It's not an excuse for apathy. Third, the fact that we are all going to be completed and our our salvation is secure means that none of us, none of us are perfect. Now you don't walk by a job site and look at a house that's being built and then start to mock it and say, no doors in that house. Where's the roof? You don't have the windows in the house anymore. There's no carpet in there. How are they going to live in that? Start to mock it. No, when you walk by a job site and you see somebody building a house, you recognize in that the design of the architect. And you say, that's going to be a beautiful house someday. You don't criticize an incomplete work. But friends, we do that with our Christian brothers and sisters all the time. We criticize their incompleteness. I mean, look at that guy's fault. Oh, he's, she's a gossip, and she's critical, and he does this, and he's short with that, and he's arrogant, and he's prideful, and boy, he's got this going on. He's a liar. He's kind of deceitful. We have to recognize that all of our brothers and sisters in whom God has begun a good work, they will be completed until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why Paul says, look, tolerate each other. Put up with one another. Bear with one another in love. Why? Because you're not perfect yet. So don't criticize an incomplete project. Just look at the project and say, wow, look what the architect's going to do with that. Hard to believe it, but Osmond's going to be perfect someday. I would never guess it, looking at him now. I would never guess that guy will be perfect someday. That he will be perfectly righteous in Christ. Perfectly holy. 
What a joke that is. We don't mock it. Instead, we say there's the design of the architect in that. And even though he's not finished yet, we can give praise and glory to God that we know it will be finished. Because if God begins the work, he'll complete it. As hard as that is for you to believe about me, I will be perfect someday. It's hard to believe about you too, by the way. Number four, it's not an excuse for a license for sin, not an excuse for apathy. It is the third one. We're not perfect. And number four, see, I forget my own sermons sometimes. No wonder you don't remember them until the next week. Number four is that, there, that that eliminates all excuses that there might be for pride. All excuses that there might be for pride. God has designed salvation in such a way that nobody would be able to stand in heaven and take credit for anything. We're not going to stand in heaven and say, you know, Lord be praised. He had, he had most of it. He was probably responsible for 60, 65% of my salvation. But there were a couple times when it came close and I really showed my true mettle. I held on to the Lord all the way to the end. I persevered all the way to the end. It's too bad my friend Joe didn't. He wasn't made of the same metal that I was made of. He started down the salvation road, but he never got to the end. And not to take glory away from God at all. I'm not intending to do that, no, because he was definitely involved in the process. But there were two of us, two of us working out my salvation. Do you think we're going to do that in heaven? No. By his power, we are kept for the day of salvation. Jude verse 24 says, He is able to keep you from stumbling. If it weren't for He who began the good work, there would be nobody able to keep me from stumbling. And if it were up to me, I would stumble, I would fall, I would lose it, I would let go, I would decide to abandon, to bail ship, to apostatize. I would do all of that. But to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before His throne with exceeding joy, blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. That's our confidence. That He who begins the work will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Am I eternally secure? If God has begun the work in me, I am absolutely eternally secure. I cannot lose my salvation. I would never trade my salvation. I would never choose to not be saved. He will keep me from stumbling. He will present me faultless before His throne. But friends, just as Scripture teaches the security of the believer... Scripture also teaches the insecurity of the make-believer. And that is why we always have to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith and see if God has begun that good work in us. And if we're confident that God has begun the good work in us, then friends, do this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Apply the means of grace. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Why? Because you're going to be perfect someday. You have that confidence. And God is at work. And so you work out. You strive. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the tremendous grace of salvation that once begun, You will see it through to the end. We know that it is Your character, Your glory, and Your grace that not only makes it possible, that makes it inevitable and impossible that we should fall away. Thank You that You are able to keep us from stumbling. Thank You that You will present us faultless before Your throne with exceeding joy. Thank You for a great Savior, a perfect shepherd, who saves his sheep and secures them to the end. And God, we ask that you would give us that confidence again today to apply the means of grace with knowing that you are going to perfect us till the day of Christ. What a wonderful certainty we have, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.